night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is childhood and family health expert Sharon Ziegler, Ph.D., author of Mommy Burnout, How to Reclaim Your Life and Raise Healthier Children in the Process. Dr. Cheryl Ziegler has given a name, Mommy Burnout, to the pervasive exhaustion, stress, and self-doubt that plagues moms today. She argues that this is far more serious than the lighthearted stereotype of the frazzled mom trying to juggle it all. Dr. Ziegler is identifying mommy burnout as a true epidemic, one that's jeopardizing the emotional and physical health of women today. She's a regular on local Fox News. She's a contributor, a panelist on NBC Morning News, and is featured on the Katie Couric Show and the Denver Post. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ziegler. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, uh, in your book, um, specifically, it outlines this prescriptive program for addressing mommy burnout, and you show us that uh, women making self-care a priority is actually better and healthier a way, is a better and healthier way to be a mommy instead of pushing yourself to the brink, which many mothers do or most mothers do maybe today, and always putting yourself last. Um, so given that, I guess the first question has to be, what exactly is mommy burn- burnout and how do we recognize it in ourselves if, if we're suffering from mommy burnout or even recognize it in, in, in someone else, a good friend or a loved one? Well, that's a, it's a great question, and you actually opened it up really well by saying, you know, most moms will say when you say to them, you know, how are you? Somewhere within the first few words, they'll say, oh, I'm exhausted, or I'm running around like crazy, or I'm so busy. Those are really common. So I think women, women are quite desensitized to that because we all say it, and, and everyone else seems to feel it, so it feels like it's the new norm. Um, when it gets to be, so that's sort of like stress. Right, so that's stress, and then there's chronic stress, and that's that would be the next progression where you're kind of like, man, I can't remember the last time I had a good night's sleep. My my kids are driving me crazy every day, and I don't know what I'm doing with my maybe my career or my life. So then, those those kind of persist, and then when it gets to actual burnout, it's sort of a progression. Burnout, really, where I got this from was it's truly from the literature more of looking at employees in the workplace. That's where this started. We started looking at caregivers, ER docs, um, social worker types, and they started looking at a couple of components that made up actual burnout, which was emotional, emotional and physical exhaustion, being cynical, so being sort of cynical in the workplace or resenting your job, um, having a sense of reduced personal accomplishment, just meaning like you don't feel like you're really making a difference, you're not doing that, that well at your job, and then prolonged exposure to stress and loss of motivation. So I took those six hallmarks of burnout and I started looking at that in terms of motherhood and thought, I think that they really apply. So those, those hallmarks would apply within motherhood where you're chronically exhausted Maybe you've lost your motivation or passion. You just sort of feel like, oh, we just get through the day. We just wake up and it's just, you know, we go through a routine. And also just having a sense of, you know, I think one of the quiet pieces, feelings that moms have that it's hard for them to admit is sometimes even resenting motherhood. Maybe feeling like, um, you know, my body's never been the same or 
what am I doing at home? I have a degree or I had a career before I had children and I'm not quite happy at home, but I also don't want to go to work. And so having those kinds of splits and sometimes resenting kids. And so those are the kinds of really, those are the things you're looking for when you say, wow, I might be more so in burnout rather than what we have gotten desensitized to as being typical stress. Do you think, I mean, Cheryl, do you think that, I mean, is this, internal stress that we sort of, as, as women, um, put on ourselves, or is this external? I mean, because you, I mean, you described a myriad of stressors, which um, seems overwhelming just as you're describing them. Is, is it something we're doing as women, or is it something that's put upon us, you know, externally, or a combination of both? Yeah, I, you know, I would say it's probably a combination of both, but it stems from Society. I think it stems from mothering today. It's very interesting when you look at the history of motherhood and how it, it progresses. One of the interesting things I found while I was doing my research is that the term parenting wasn't even always a term. That's something that came about in the last about 50 years. It, it wasn't thought of that way necessarily as a vocation, the way we think of it now. And so what has happened, what has evolved over time is that there's more and more information out. There's pressures that, you know, when, a, when your child comes home from school, you should be helping them with their homework. You should be, um, you know, very hands-on. You are a part of their, you know, learning process and all that. So I think what's happened is that mothers have become um, so much more than mothers. So that definition has expanded where you are mother as teacher, mother as coach, um, mother as mentor, mother as, you know, parenting role model. Like, we've taken on all of these roles, and then you take that in combination with a modern-day motherhood, which has access to the Internet and social media, and then now the, perfection, the perfectionism has become the bar in which that's where we're measuring ourselves by. So it's a little bit of a combination of both, but a lot pretty weighted heavily in just how things have evolved over time. Yeah, I think they've evolved as you're describing them politically, socially, and you said 50 years. You know, it's changed. It's changed dramatically in in the past 50 years in terms of what mothering is. I think that's that post World War II thing. The other piece of it is before World War II, families lived together in communities and had a lot of mothers had a lot of support. So, as you're saying, mother thinks she has to be a perfect mother, the teacher, the social worker. She has to do everything where she didn't have to. I mean, that wasn't part of the the family setup usually in, in the, you know, before the 50s and where you had the nuclear family sort of isolated and mother doing everything and now it's just exponentially gotten worse and worse as, as well as you've been describing it. You're absolutely right. I mean, chapter two of my book um, is about that. It's about connection, isolation, and the fact that we were not raised, we were not born to be raised in isolation the way we are now, where, you know, like in my situation, we don't have any family in town. That is very common. We have family in different states. There is no immediate family. If something were to happen right now, I would not have a family member to call. And so we weren't, you know, I think families were not ever meant to be raised like that. And so then, therefore, if I had an emergency, I'd have to be comfortable enough to contact a friend and say, oh, you know, I need your help with this, that, or the other. And then that is also the next step of it. So we don't have our families around, which I think um, has been a huge stressor. And then secondly, we're also so, quote, busy that 
people aren't nurturing their friendships. And it's very easy to say, um, you know, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm so busy, so am I. And then I, I talk about busy builds walls. If I say that to you, then you are less inclined to say, hey, well, why don't we go grab coffee? Or I could really use a favor. You're going to go, well, why would I ask her? She's just as busy as me. I'm not going to put her in that situation or talk to her about maybe my marital problems or things that are bothering me. And so we have so many things going on in terms of lack of real community. We have, and I also I think I just want the word you just used, nurturing, because I think nurturing is like the key. As you say, it's difficult for us to nurture our friendships, and we can't nurture each other as, as friends or girlfriends because we're all so busy, busy, busy. One thing you talk about in the book is, and I've always thought about this, you know, with this mommy burnout and marriage. Women are not, and men, but we're talking about the women today, uh, nurturing their relationships, their marriages. I see all of these, many of these young women have, having babies in their 30s and maybe obviously a little, 10 years later than perhaps 50 years ago. Um, They are making, you know, they'll have, uh, after each baby, they have to make sure that they get their bodies back in shape. So they're working out at the gym and they're working on their bodies and trying to be, and, you know, look beautiful and also do their mothering. And nurturing a marriage is sort of like, you know, really low on the totem pole. And I think if you maybe were at home with your husband having great sex, you wouldn't have to be working out so much at the gym on the... Um, it, and I, I, you sort of bring that up on, on some level in your book. I mean, like, you know, there are other ways of, of, uh, of, of feeling good about yourself and, and instead of putting this intense kind of superficial pressure to, to not only to look good um, and to always be doing the right thing. Absolutely. I mean, that is chapter six of the book is how burnout <laughs> puts our marriages in jeopardy. So if I am... You know, if I am, let's just say in, in one situation, I am a working mom. So I'm a working mom. I'm trying, I'm trying to climb my corporate ladder or be the very best, right? I'm, I'm striving for perfection at work, too. I don't want to no, never let them see him sweat. So, like, I want to seem really strong at work. And then I also want to be there for my kids. I don't really want them to feel like working impedes on my ability to be a fantastic mother. So I want to be there for them and make all of their plays and make homemade Halloween costumes or whatever that might be. Be a great, whatever my definition of being a great mom to them is. When you look at it that way, even if you could say that I could give 100% at work and 100% to my kids, so I'm at 200%. There's no way I'm getting another 100% to give to my husband and then another 100% to give to my best friends. And so something's got to give. And typically for today's mom, it's not going to be her kids. Um, she's not going to say, you know, I'm really going to put all of my effort into my marriage and I'm just going to just trust that the kid thing's going to work out. That's not what she's going to do. She's going to prioritize her kids. And there's only so much energy, and yes, it's very easy for the marriage to just simply go by the wayside, um, to get into routines, and, you know, be good enough. And some people say, well, we do date night, and then I'll ask them in our session, so what do you talk about at, at you know, what do you do at date night, usually a dinner? We, well, we go out to a dinner. That's nice, and what do you guys talk about? And, you know, they laugh usually, and they'll say, well, most of the time we talk about the kids. And then they'll say, you know, we don't really have a lot of time in the weekdays to do that, so it's kind of nice. You know, we can, we can sit and relax and really talk about the kids. Um, so we're now even using the time that you do make to just talk about kids. 
Yeah, and the date night has sort of a superficiality about it. I'm not saying it's not a good thing to, you know, get out and go out for dinner. But as you say, it doesn't really seem to resolve the problem. I mean, there's no real, is there, I'll ask you the question. I mean, is there any real intimacy or sensuality about it or a real connection? or, Or is it the same kind of date night you could have with your you know, with a friend or with your mother or your in-laws. That, that's not a yeah. You know I what mean, I'm saying? It's I, a, yeah. <laughs> yes, I totally know what you're saying. I think that for for many couples, you you could probably have a better date night with your friends, actually, because yeah. with Better your talk friends, to my girlfriend, they're talk right? about whatever yeah. you really want to talk about. Yeah. And they're going to tell, they're, let's say with a woman, and that's one of the things I really talk about is the connection women to women connecting is special and unique. Um, and so when you're with another woman, even if she's doing the talking, you're learning, you're, you're absorbing, you're saying, oh, yeah, me too, or, oh, wow, I had that, and this is what I did. There's a lot of energy and interaction when two women get together and share their stories. But when a husband and a wife that maybe one or possibly two people, both of them, are functioning in either chronic stress or burnout, and there's a high probability that they fall into one of two, those two categories, you know, what they're doing basically is sort of almost downloading the week. It's just, uh, oh, yes, my boss did this. Oh, yeah, one of, the, one of the, you know, kids at school did this, whatever it is, whatever they do. And they're just sort of reporting and maybe getting a little bit out of that. And then, you know, the dinner's over, and it's very easy, again, to end the night with just sort of being like, oh, I'm exhausted. I want to go home. Um, you know, and go home, and then what do they do when they both go home? One might go on, on the TV, and one is probably going to go on their iPad or their phone, and they're going to tune out and end the night that way. Yeah. So what's the solution for that? I mean, that's yeah. very specific. Yeah, what is the solution? And I guess the second part of it is, and we're talking about husband and wives, do gay couples have the same problem in your experience as psychologists? Do they understand each other better? Like if you have two daddies or two mommies, or is it the same thing? That's a great question. You know, what I have found, both anecdotally in my practice, as well as some of the research that I've done, is that gay couples have the same exact issues. There's really not that much of a difference between the way their marriages or their relationships work out or the way that their parenting issues are. So, um, so that is very, you know, there's a lot of similarities in that way. Um, and I think, you know, when it comes down to what's the solution to all of this, we really look at a couple of things, I think, within, within our personal relationships. We do need to we still need to have self-care time. And so it's, it's interesting because we're saying, oh, you know, you need to put more time into these relationships. But you were, I think, hitting the nail on the head. It's not necessarily you have to put more actual time. You have to make the time that you have together quality. So my, one of the things that I really advocate for all throughout the book, whether it's friendships or it's your kids' relationship, is that you really take care of yourself first. We have to fuel ourselves up so that we can show up in our relationships and we can be present and we can have the reserve to have the patience or the creativity to problem solve. And if we're running around sleep deprived, dehydrated, not well nourished, um, and like you're saying, you don't have to go to the gym and work out like crazy, but if you are going outside and taking brisk walks and getting out into nature, just getting your body moving for at least 20 minutes a day, you are in a, so much of a better position 
when your partner walks through the door to, to maybe go over and greet them and give them a kiss hello and say, how was your day? And at least have some real meaningful interaction before, boom, the kids get involved. And so the theme of the book is really a case for self-care. And hopefully people will get that and be inspired to know that it's, it's for themselves, but it's also to enhance all of their relationships. Yeah. I think one of the things you say in the book, you, you, and I think this is so important, ban the word busy as a badge of honor. Everybody talks about how busy, and they do see it as a badge of honor. If I am busy, I am doing the right thing, and I am you know, at the top of my game, and you're talking about self-care, I just want to, because you do say prioritize your own self-care. Uh, I think that's really important, like how to prioritize it. And I guess what I was going to ask you is, like, can you give us examples, maybe people that you've seen or um, who have really, really maybe at the bottom of the burnout, let's say in this case the mommy burnout, and then who've been able to do um, what would you suggest in the book, for instance, and, and have been successful at it? Yeah. So people who have been truly successful at this, um, my experience has been that they have um, they've started off simply, right? So they've started off in one area. For some of them, it's been they've noticed that their form of self-care, because I usually ask people that, how do you take care of yourself? And oftentimes moms will say, well, I, you know, I have a glass or two of wine a night. That helps me unwind. It helps me get through the night. So we take a look at that. Is that functional for you? Is that a dysfunctional way that you are taking care of your stress? So the first thing to do is really identify how high is your level of stress? What are you doing? Because you're doing something. It might not even be healthy, but you are usually doing something to try to mediate your stress. So we take a look at what are you doing? Let's not even judge it. Just what are you doing? You know, and it might be I emotionally eat at night. I just, you know, when everyone's asleep, I sit there with a bag of chips and it makes me feel better, you know, whatever it might be. So we take a look at what they're doing and then we just talk about replacing it and we try to make it very, very realistic for them. You know, sure, meditating, we know the research is is bananas on how incredibly powerful and helpful that is to us. But I say to people, you know, if they look at me like, are you kidding me that I'm going to start meditating? I suggest things like an app. I'll say, well, what about if we grab a meditation app and just give that a try? And I kind of explain how that might work, and that works. That might work for people, and it's a way they start their day. For other people, it's you've got to you've got to make a date night with a girlfriend every week. It's really important. Um, so making that a priority. We talk about you know with your kids and how we're overparenting our kids. I'll say, what are some areas where maybe you can start to, in, to really encourage autonomy and independence within your kids so it does free up some of that emotional burden and you feel good about it because you're teaching them to be more independent. So we just sort of take, start off with awareness, start off with what they're currently doing and take one area that a mom feels motivated about. Maybe I personally think it should be something else, but I wouldn't impose that on a woman. I'll let her make the choice which she thinks she should start, and I say, great, let's just start there. So start small so that you can be successful. Uh, that, I mean, I, those are excellent suggestions, and, and I really, uh, you know, I, I like the way you can sort of lay it out. Um, it doesn't have to be this overwhelming, I'm going to fix everything in, in two months and, and uh, again, be the perfect person. But um, 
one of the things also that you talk that I think is important um, that you dis- discuss in the book is burnout in kids because I think sometimes uh, mothers um, don't realize how their kids do pick up on this and they you know you think you're doing everything and the kids don't realize how stressed out you really are but they 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 know they do pick up on that and it it's detrimental to them and to the whole family so talk to us a little bit about that yeah so um what happens is when we are modeling for our kids that you have to go, 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 and you have to be at the top of your game and sort of have this sense of perfection, I'm the best at everything I try, what happens is we have kids, and we know we have an epidemic of a generation of kids that have higher rates of depression and anxiety than we have ever seen. And it is truly actually a global epidemic. So we know, we've all heard kids feel pressure these days. And in part, I think kids feel the pressure, not just from what we're saying to them, you know, like, did you study? Did you study? Did you do this? Did you talk to your coach? Did you get your, I mean, I, in my practice, see parents really reprimanding their kids or pushing their kids like, well, I don't see you in the backyard practicing whatever your sport is. So you're not really showing dedication. I hear those kinds of things. So it's not just the, what they're overtly hearing, but it's also what they're seeing, when they see us running ourselves ragged and they see us pushing ourselves to the limit in every area, well, they naturally get the message that this is what you're supposed to do or at least this is what we expect in this family that you do. And so kids then start to feel like, okay, I've got to do that. So I've got to maintain my friendships. I've got to have straight A's. I have to stay after school and get extra help if I need to, but I also need to be involved in multiple sports and activities and practice them all the time. So go from practicing the violin for an hour to going, you know, going to practice and then coming home and doing three hours of homework. Like that is the average afternoon for many, millions of kids in America every single day. And obviously, enough of that chronic stress leads to burnout. As I'm listening to you, I'm exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> You're describing the situation. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think it's right on. It's, it's very accurate. I mean, I remember my own kids saying, let's say if they got some kind of award or they got on some team and they'd say, I know you're going to be really happy because be, I can put that on my resume for college. And I think, oh, my yeah. God. And in my head, it would be there is a part of me that's, thinking about that and you know it's I think so I think you're really I think it's getting worse uh, you know even they're grown up now but I think uh, I think there's more access to more things and and doing more things and um, so I guess the 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 next question is like well this is another the women who you know maybe try and maybe mitigate that burnout they'll be like stay-at-home mothers for instance are they any better off than the women who go to work who maybe have to organize themselves better? Or is there a difference in terms of who gets burned out more? That's a great, great question. So I thought I might find some differences. And the only difference that I could find is that actually, not necessarily with burnout, but that actually stay-at-home moms are the least happiest group of women. Stay-at-home moms. And um, I think that that's, you know, surprising for some people to hear. So that's in terms of happiness. But um, I think that everybody has, we have way more commonalities than differences, let's say, versus um, working moms outside of the home and moms who work within the home. There's a lot more commonalities. But some of the differences that they feel are 
um, you know, the stay-at-home mom sometimes is just, again, in today's world, she may be an educated woman who had even, like you were saying, a 10-year career. And then all of a sudden she has kids and she's like, well, I want to stay home. And, you know, I put, my, I put 10 years into whatever my career was. And then they stay home and they, the question that they go through is, is this it? Like, is this what I've been, you know, I'm now a woman in my mid-30s. I've had a healthy career, uh, you know, a marriage that, you know, may be a couple years old and, like, this is it. And that's a hard question to admit to out loud, but it really is the question that goes through their mind. They really start to question their purpose. Um, you know, doing laundry and cooking and cleaning and raising babies and toddlers until they're ready to go into school. Um, and then if they have multiple kids, that goes on for many years they really question that. So that's the stay-at-home mom. And then the working moms, their question sort of is, is this worth it? Like, I'm killing myself. I'm killing myself at work. I'm killing myself at home. I'm trying to do it all. You know, is this worth it? What is the solution? So both, both moms have very, very similar feelings. It's just the question might be slightly different, but ultimately they're both asking themselves, like, is this it? Is this worth it? Um, how do I make this work? And so that's what I have found really quite interesting. Yeah, the, so there's ambivalence on both sides, and there's, you know, they're actually asking the same kinds of questions, but in different contexts, I guess. Um, so it's, I guess it would be unique to each woman, right? I mean, I, you know, when I, was, when I was working, I would find I would be, I would be kind of jealous of the mothers who were staying home, and then when I was home, I was jealous of the mothers who were working and couldn't yes. quite get it together. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You're and, exactly uh, right. The grass is greener. The grass yeah. is definitely greener. Well, we only have and, a couple minutes um, left. You know, uh, I, it, it's, it, you're exactly right. Both, both sort of envy it, and that's, there's a really fun chapter in the book about that um, where, you know, there's a working – like, well, it's, some of it's based off of my experience. So sometimes – Women will come in and they'll look at me in my practice and they'll say, wow, you look so nice today. I wish I had a reason to get dressed up. I wish I wore dresses and heels again. And I laugh and I say, you know, when I'm not here, I'm also in yoga pants or jeans and a T-shirt, no makeup, and my hair's thrown up. Like, you do know that, right? And so, and it's like, and they're like, yeah, I know, but at least you have a reason to get dressed up. So there's always that feeling of, Whatever I don't have, man, that kind of seems nice. Um, and so I think, though, you know, there used to be this notion of the mommy wars and that it was, you know, one versus the other. And I just don't, I don't want that to exist. I don't think it exists as strongly, but I think there's certainly still biases. You know, I definitely still actively hear people say, well, she doesn't work, so of course she right. can do that. Or the opposite. Well, she works, so of course she missed that. You know, I mean, yeah. I still hear. I, I think you're like right. That. I think it has. It's kind of dissipating. I, I, I think, at least that's how I see it. I hate, we're going to have to say goodbye. I hate to say goodbye because it's very. I mean, you've presented really interesting points in relation to your book, and I, I want to mention the book again so that people can go out and buy the book, "Mommy Burnout: How to Reclaim Your Life and Raise Healthier Children in the Process." And we've been talking to Cheryl Ziegler. PhD. You can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, I assume. But Cheryl, tell us what website we can go to to get more information about you and or the book or work you're doing. Yeah, well, there is the book's website is mommyburnout.com. Um, and I also have my personal website, drcherylziegler.com. 
And I would love for people, um, even if they are listening and they are a grandmother or they've got... <clears throat> They've got someone that they know that they could benefit from. Men have been very interested in this to really check it out because I think it could really start a movement of change that is very needed. Right. We're all in it together. (laughs) We are. Thank you. We are. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author and physician, Dr. Samuel Harrington, author of At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. Most people say they would like to die quietly at home, but overtly, oh, oh, overly aggressive medical advice coupled with an unrealistic sense of invincibility results in many elderly patients misguidedly dying in institutions while undergoing painful procedures. 
Through experience with his own parents and patients, Dr. Harrington, a Harvard College and University of Wisconsin Medical School graduate, has developed specific steps for patients and their healthcare proxies to ensure last days pass comfortably at home and or in hospice when further aggressive care is inappropriate. His work as a patient safety officer representative to the Johns Hopkins Medicine Board of Trustees and his service on the board of a nonprofit hospice in Washington, D.C., fueled uh, Dr. Harrington's passion for helping aged pa- patients make appropriate end-of-life decisions. Welcome to the show, Dr. Harrington. Nice to have you here. Catherine, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. <clears throat> well, some people would say, you know, uh, choosing a, well, a good death is kind of an oxymoron, like can death ever be really good because it seems like we're uh, most of the time just trying to avoid it. Obviously, this is what your book is about. And uh, continue when maybe we shouldn't be trying to prolong life in a very uncomfortable way. So uh, a good death, what is a good death? Well, a good death, you're right, there is an oxymoronic quality to that, and maybe we should be talking about a better death. But a good death has been well studied, and, and the attributes or the characteristics of a good death have been sort of dissected out. And most of the studies, if you put them together, will identify five attributes in order of importance. The single most important attribute is some degree of control. Of course, comfort is important. Uh, Closure is important. Uh, Affirmation, and that means the ability to um, be validated, have your values uh, supported by the people around you, and then trust. Um, So those five uh, attributes, control, comfort, closure, affirmation, and trust, define to me what a good death is, but <clears throat> if you were to flip those, I think that's a better exercise, because if control were helplessness and comfort became pain, and closure, the opportunity to reconcile with friends and family, became isolation, and, uh, and affirmation became denial, and, and uh, trust was frustration or distrust, You've pretty well described with those five negative characteristics what it's like to die in the intensive care unit of a hospital. In my experience, and I think this is, maybe it's unfortunately somewhat typical as a baby boomer, and I've watched my friends, I've watched family die, and I would say at least half of them or even more um, could best be described by the second group of adjectives. Uh, for some reason, people who've led good lives, who have led healthy lives, and suddenly when it's time for them to die, um, and I must say, physicians prolong their lives because giving them, I, as I've seen it, and this is, a, you know, personally, this is anecdotal, but, um, you know, giving them false hopes and prescribing them with medication at the end of life that is just, they die in pain and suffering and with their families disliking them, wanting them to die because it's all become so uncomfortable and such a burden for everyone. Well, that is the case. And and baby boomers, of which I'm a member of that generation, I'm 66, uh, we are... We have an overinflated opinion of our healthcare system, and we have very over over expectations about our ability to live long, vigorous lives right up to the end. And uh, and we are helping make uh, the leading edge of baby boomers are seventy four, and the and the uh, uh, trailing end of baby boomers are 
uh, 52. So the leading edge are actually having to make these decisions now with these over-expectations, and the trailing edge are helping their parents make these decisions. And uh, we do end up getting over-treated because of our over-expectation and because the uh, over-treatment is kind of the fallback position for medical care in the United States. Uh, It's the default position to continue treatment and to double down on the treatments we've started. And my book is, is fundamentally about helping people avoid that uh, if that is their choice. Now, not everybody wants to avoid uh, excessive treatment. Groucho Marx famously said uh, that he wanted, he planned to live forever or die trying, and, and that is a recipe for ending up in the intensive care unit, and some people are like that or have that uh, point of view. But most people, uh, uh, most elderly patients, when surveyed, would say that they would prefer to die at home as peacefully as possible. And I maintain that it is fundamental that that if you want to die at home, uh, you have to be be prepared to say no to medical uh, treatment. You have to understand when it is appropriate to say no to medical, uh, to hospitalization. Well, you talk about very specific uh, active and passive ways of doing this. Um, what is elderly? Who do we consider elderly these days? Who are uh, the elderly? Well, are they 65 yeah, well, and older? Well, or somebody who else. Are they? <laughs> the elderly are sort of somebody else. Oh, I'm not elderly. <laughs> I'm um, not. Yeah, I was well, going to say, it's really not, a, not I. I. I can't walk very far. I can't uh, see very well. I can't hear. Uh, but thank heavens I can still drive. I mean, that's how yeah. people look at themselves. Um but elderly is a combination of things. Uh, the CDC, for example, clusters uh, all of us over the age of 65 together, so they equate me, a fairly healthy person, I think, I hope, uh, with 105-year-olds uh, in a single demographic, but that doesn't really describe elderly or old age. Uh, authors write about the young old at 65 the middle old at 75, the old old at 85. Um, But I try and get across the point in my book that age is a, is old age is sort of a confluence of three things, a numerical number, um, our performance status, which is medical speak for our ability to take care of ourselves. uh, As uh, you would be familiar with the idea of activities of daily living. So if we can't take care of ourselves, if we can't bathe ourselves, if we can't feed ourselves, then our performance status has declined. And of course, our disease status. If our disease moves from stage one to stage four, uh, that's part of the process, of, of the part of the definition of elderly. So if your disease is getting worse and your performance status is declining and your age is advancing, somewhere those three lines intersect and that person is old, in my opinion, and should um, should factor age into their thinking when they, when they decide about a medical treatment. Uh, so but let me give sort of three examples because sometimes getting very concrete uh, helps. Uh, so at age 65, if, I, if a patient walked into my office at age 65 and had stage four cancer that was not responding to chemotherapy, I would say uh, that person should consider themselves old. And if a patient was 75 and was at stage two heart failure, congestive heart failure, had been hospitalized a couple of times and was 
unable to um, bathe themselves or dress themselves, that person should think of themselves as old. And if a patient was 85 and seemingly in perfect health but was unable to get themselves up off the floor should they slip uh, off a chair and tumble to the floor, uh, well, that's a, that's a sign of frailty, and that person should also consider themselves old because they will not bounce back from aggressive treatment the way we would hope. Now, as a physician, is this something that you or, let's say, other physicians, your colleagues, would say to the person? I mean, just as you're you know, giving me the de- definition and you're talking about a 65-year-old who would be considered elderly if they can't do the activities of day- daily living or, as you say, they have a chronic condition that's deteriorated, do you say that to them so that they can make a, an informed choice as to whether they want to get more treatment or not get more treatment? Well, of course, that is the big challenge, and I would say most doctors do not say that to patients, and it is very difficult for me uh, to uh, summon up the courage to say that kind of thing to patients, but um, I certainly said it to my parents, and I can think of specific patients where I did uh, address those issues. Uh, We usually uh, talk around it sort of euphemistically, saying, well, uh, oncologists will say, well, maybe we should try and buy some more time with this uh, course of chemotherapy, but that's just another way of uh, of dodging uh, this conversation. And I do remember many patients where I would try and suck it up and tell them the truth. And I think we need a little bit more of that because if we don't talk about prognosis, um, we're really not giving the patients a full full sense of uh, what's to come. Uh, I I remember very distinctly the conversation with my mother, and, and it's more distinct than other conversations with patients, but when my mother was uh, diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, we sat down and we were chatting, and I tried to get across the idea that, she, that the median survival for stage 4 lung cancer was 10 months, and uh, my mother looked at me and asked me, she said, Sam, am I dying? And I said, well, the answer is yes, but uh, we just don't know when. Although, if there were 100 patients in your apartment, uh, it would be very crowded. uh, But in 10 months, 50% of them wouldn't be here. And we just don't know whether you would be in that 50% or not. But but another point I make with respect to that kind of conversation with elderly patients is that elderly patients are likely to, will not, will not exceed the median life expectancy by a long margin because they're already elderly. They don't really have, uh, if they survive one disease, they will um, succumb to another one that will be secondary or complicate the process. So in that conversation with your mother, I guess two questions. How did you feel mm-hmm. after you had told her the truth, uh, as you know it, as best you could? And what was her response? Um, I, I wished I didn't have to have that conversation, but I felt uh, that I had helped her. Uh, so I felt, in a sense, good about it. Uh, and her response, and my father was there, was sort of a prolonged silence. And then... Um, Figuratively speaking, they rubbed their hands together and uh, started making decisions. And the first decision was 
uh, to say to themselves, well, um, if you have 10 months, let's uh, see what we can do to make the best of it. Uh, I said I would like you to be alive for uh, my daughter's wedding, which is coming up in uh, four months, I think, from that point. And so we talked about uh, a little bit of chemotherapy, meaning she had a discussion with her oncologist, and uh, to take chemotherapy with the goal of slowing down the growth, but not uh, creating a complication, not being too aggressive. And I understand that uh, this is wishful thinking, as I uh, say it in retrospect, but that's what we were hoping for. And then uh, getting into hospice so that when she traveled from our uh, home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to Washington, D.C., uh, where the wedding was, was uh, she would be uh, an established hospice patient who uh, would be able to receive some benefit from uh, hospice care in Washington should a problem arise. Fortunately, nothing did. But, um, and, and that was our approach. And uh, it, was, it worked out very well. Uh, she was a minor celebrity at the wedding <laughs> and uh, living in the reflected glory of my daughter and uh, vice versa. And we, uh, she went home, stayed in the hospice and had a quiet few months after that and died in September, about uh, nine months after the diagnosis was made. Mm-hmm. So that's, the, I guess, I mean, that's, I don't want to say, I mean, that's kind of like the, the perfect story or the kind of story that we want to hear, but how do, how do we get physicians and or patients to help them to make those kinds of choices or decisions? I mean, obviously that's what your book is about. It, it just seems that... Right. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it takes, it takes a certain vision of, of how you are willing to die or how you would find it acceptable and then the vision turns into conversations, and then the conversations turn into decision-making. So <clears throat> my father's vision, for example, uh, came to me as we were discussing a problem he had. Uh, he had an aortic aneurysm in his abdomen that was threatening to rupture, and he had, he, my father was a lawyer, had been a lawyer, and he knew, based on a, one of his client's experiences, that if the aneurysm ruptures, uh, he he will die quickly, um, I, and of course, I didn't want that to happen, so we were discussing treatment options, uh, one of which was pretty good and one of which was not so good, and my father looked at me, and he furrowed his brow, and he pointed his finger, and he strained his voice, and he said, why would I want to fix something that is going to carry me away the way that I want to go? And... I realized that his vision, I realized several things. One was his vision was to diet uh, quickly and decisively. Uh, he would decline uh, uh, emergency surgery and he would take palliative pain medicine and be dead within hours. That was his vision. It's a bit naive and random. But it also told me uh, and my sisters uh, what he wanted and it helped us, uh, inform, it informed us about other decisions. And that's the kind of decision, let me, uh, where he, one declines a treatment that they see as uh, actually declining the treatment is beneficial compared to taking the aggressive treatment. And most of us will not be able to decline emergency surgery. Most of us will not 
be able to decline a pacemaker for congestive heart failure, but many of us will be able to decline a fourth, fifth, or sixth course of chemotherapy. Most of us will be able to decline uh, antibiotics for pneumonia if we're lucky enough to live uh, to be a, a very old age. And these are, that's the kind of decision that I'm trying to encourage. Uh, I don't want people to not have aggressive treatment, but I want people to understand that when aggressive treatment starts to fail, they have to have a plan to not pursue uh, further aggressive treatment. And I think when you have these conversations, and there have been books also written about this, is it, it all has to, the description. I think physicians, and I'll start with the physicians, have to be really honest about what aggressive treatment means, really honest about it in terms of the pain, the suffering, the specifics of it, the time that you will be consumed with this aggressive treatment for three more months. Yes, you may live three more months or six more months, but uh, the quality of your life and the way you're going to live it is not what that dream that you may have. I think that's important. And I, I think... The next question is, like, one of the things that we hear about and social workers hear about, you know, have these conversations when you're younger. Like, don't have these conversations. Like, when you have the, you know, find out you have the aneurysm or stage 4 cancer, but do it when you're in your 20s or 30s and think about it, and then you will be more prepared to make the conversation, to make the choices, better choices for yourself or to refuse treatment or whatever the choice is later on. I don't know if that if that's really true because, when it actually happens 20 years later, um, I don't know whether you make better decisions or make better choices. Uh, I don't know what well, your all, experience is. Yeah. We all have to have the uh, sort of that, the, the conversation early about um, extraordinary circumstances like uh, automobile accidents and brain death and what do we want done if we're, that's what a young person thinks about. <clears throat> but uh, and and we should have an advance, a written advance directive that addresses that, but it, we really don't know how to flesh out uh, the picture in a in a more detailed way until diseases or conditions start to accumulate. So we have to be prepared for disaster uh, as a as a young person making decisions, but uh, it's much more common uh, as aged moves on to start developing chronic illnesses and then we need to have some understanding of where they're going and, and make and, and refine our decision making and flesh it out. And most people don't have those conversations either. We just assume that we're going to um, keep going and lead long, vigorous lives. But that belies the fact that uh, if we're lucky enough to live to be 85 or 90, 80% of us will be suffering some degree of uh, disability in the sense that we will have lost the ability to care for ourselves in one way or another. Um, I think one of the things, we only have a, a few minutes left, but the first thing that you mentioned, you know, you want to be able to be in control. I think, you know, that's sort of like that is fits into our our American culture, that whole idea of control, and we actually I think we can think we can control our death and we can live forever, and, um, and I think that, very often gets in the way that whole and uh, that patient you know that we we just don't see ourselves as as losing control that we will be in control even when it's not realistic when it comes to a let's say a chronic illness or as we're aging so I, I think that well I would sort of I would yeah. uh, 
modify the concept of control a little bit. I agree that we can't control when we die and we really can't control exactly how we die. But if we don't, uh, but when we, if we cede control to the physicians, if we let the physicians make decisions, uh, the medical system will take control and we will have nothing and we will uh, suffer uh, more aggressive treatment perhaps than we had wanted. And uh, so when I say, uh, take control. It's really taking the control and decision making from physicians and putting it back on the patients. And and sort of when I say engage in hospice care, I'm not saying go home and die. I'm saying go home and take control of those decisions which you can control. Uh, because <clears throat> if you don't, uh, doctors will be making the decisions and treatment will uh, be layered upon treatment. Uh, until futile treatment uh, develops. Yeah. I think that's, uh, a, I, there, that's a real important point, and I think medical schools really have to address this. I assume you've, well, your, your book is circulated in medical schools, or you're giving lectures, or you should be, because I think you have to start with these medical students, don't you, in the, very, in the beginning of their careers to be able to you know, engage in this kind of um, dialogue with their patients when they become I physicians. Agree com- I agree completely. I, I have not, the book hasn't been out long enough for me to be invited to do that, but I do believe that medical schools should have a course on, uh, that should be entitled something like, would you do that to your mother uh, kind of course, because um, futile treatment is hard to, to define, uh, but we all see it in retrospect when we look back at our loved ones, the, at the death our loved ones endured, and if we look back at the last aggressive treatment they suffered, and if we reflect on that, and if we say, I wish I had not done that to my mother, or I wish I had not done that to my father, then we have described futile care, and the trick is to, uh, is to foresee it and avoid it. And uh, I think a medical school uh, uh, course would be appropriate in, in that regard. Yeah, I think that's very well said. We have a mi- one minute left, so uh, I want to um, repeat the name of the book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. When I've been talking to Dr. Samuel Harrington. Um, Dr. Harrington, do you have a website that we can go to, uh, to you know, referring I, to I about do. the book and about you? Yeah. My website is samharrington.com, <clears throat> all uh, uh, all run together, S-A-M-H-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N.com. And uh, all my contact information is there, and I look forward to hearing from people. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Catherine. I enjoyed it, too. It was a great. I could go on and on. We could do another half an hour, but um, we'll have to have you back on the show again. This was great, and, and good luck with the book. And uh, uh, I'll get the word out there, but thanks so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.